The lab tests are back from the White House. It's cocaine. The lead starts right now. A Ziploc baggie filled with cocaine found just steps from the West Wing where guests are often ushered through the White House. But now the question, who dropped it? Setting off Sunday's hazmat evacuation. Then, the phenomenon sadly unique to the United States, gun violence in America reaching a new level of horror. 356 mass shootings so far this year. A stunning 15 of them just this past holiday weekend. Coming up, why these tragic shootings always seem to spike in the summer months and what can be done about it. Plus, a federal judge slapping the Biden administration with new restrictions on social media saying the Biden administration cannot decide what is and is not misinformation. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. And we begin today with something of a mystery in our political lead. Who left a baggie of Coke at the White House? There was a brief evacuation Sunday night after the powdery substance was found in an area of the West Wing that is accessible to some tour groups. This afternoon, the U.S. Secret Service confirmed the lab tests indicate that the substance is cocaine. Let's go to CNN's Jeremy Diamond at the White House for us. Jeremy, this afternoon's White House press briefing just wrapped up. Uh, What did Karine Jean-Pierre, the press secretary, have to say? Well, listen, Jake, the White House isn't saying that this was a visitor at the White House who dropped this baggie of cocaine, but uh, she certainly is insinuating that that seems to be the likely possibility. The White House press secretary today said that this uh, bag of cocaine was found in a heavily traveled area of the West Wing. I asked the White House press secretary uh, whether or not they are confident that uh, this was not a White House staffer. Uh, Here's what she said. Have you made any White House officials available for interviews with law enforcement, for example? Well, look, we're not assisting in anything. This is under the Secret Service purview. This is their uh, their kind of guidance and guideline, their, uh, their world. And so we're going to let them do their job. What I wanted to be very clear is that this is a heavily, uh, heavily, traf- uh, heavily traveled, uh, to be more accurate, area of the campus of the White House, and uh, and it is where visitors uh, from, to the West Wing uh, come through. This is the part where they come through when it comes to coming to the West Wing. I just don't have anything else. I'm not going to speculate on who it was. And you can see at the end there, Jake, she would not rule out the possibility that this could be a White House staffer merely saying that this is a Secret Service uh, ongoing investigation and they are going to get to the bottom of this. She did express confidence that the Secret Service will indeed get to the bottom of this. Now, separately, a person familiar with the matter says that this uh, bag of cocaine was discovered near the ground floor entrance uh, to the West Wing, which is indeed the area where tour groups often on the weekends will come through accompanied and escorted by a White House staffer. It was also found near where phones are often uh, where visitors are asked to leave their phones before they enter uh, the West Wing. But at this point, we just don't know exactly who found this. The Secret Service says that they are continuing to investigate this, uh, and we will see whether they have an answer soon. Jake. All right, Jeremy Diamond at the White House. Thank you so much. Let's bring in CNN Chief Law Enforcement and Intelligence Analyst John Miller. John, because of where it was found and what you heard from the White House, is the presumption, you think, uh, of, among the U.S. Secret Service agents investigating this, that it belonged to a, a tourist? So, no. Um, that's a possibility, because people who come through, uh, the tours uh, go through there. But that area is, you know, there's a, you've been through that entrance, I've been through that entrance. It's a, uh, there's a canopy right there. It comes in off the street. And then you go in there. There's a bunch of cubbies where you put your phones. If you're going to one of those restricted areas where you can't carry a phone, uh, like the Situation Room or somewhere else, uh, 
where people can put other belongings. Uh, and it was found right by where those cubbies are. So that could be a staffer. That could be a member of the press who was there for a specific interview with someone on that side of the West Wing. Uh, what they're going to do is look at the video. Uh, what does the video tell you? Was it Friday? Was it Saturday? Uh, was it there before and just unnoticed? Uh, they'll look at the logs. Okay, who signed in? Who were they going to see? Uh, but there's more than that. The powder has been sent to Fort Detrick for second round of testing to see, okay, it tested positive for cocaine. Is there anything else in it that could be hazardous or weaponized? Uh, the container it came in, which is about the size of a postage stamp, like a dime bag, Ziploc. Uh, they'll be looking to see if they can extract a print from that or DNA. So they're going to go through a lot of motions before they are at the stage where they're going to need to interview people. Yeah, but it, it seems like they're going to definitely find this person. <laughs> There's so many cameras and the baggie will have prints. Um, but while I have you, John, I want to ask you, prosecutors today filed some court documents uh, with far more details about the January 6th riot suspect who was arrested near former President Obama's home in Washington last week. They say that this man had firearms, hundreds of rounds of ammunition and had begun live streaming in the area shortly after resharing this social media post from Donald Trump, giving what Trump claimed was former President Obama's address. Prosecutors also revealed the man made threats against House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Um, this does seem to be a case where the Secret Service was in the right place at the right time. You know, this is a good example of some of the things that we've seen criticism about, about law enforcement not communicating or sharing intelligence, say, before January 6th. Here you've got an FBI investigation into Taylor Toronto, who um, has said he was in the Capitol on January 6th. They pass that information to the Secret Service. Uh, the Capitol Police get that information and put out a, a, a be on the lookout for. He's live streaming, saying he's going to drive his van, allegedly, to NIST, the National Institute for Standards and Technology, and that it's a self-driving van and it's got a detonator. So basically, he's threatening to blow up NIST one day. The next day, Thursday, uh, he's talking about this is where the, uh, the Podestas live and the Obamas live, and I'm going to meet them in hell. And um, according to the YouTube channel he was streaming on, um, you know, I'm here to get a shot. I need to get the angle. Now, here is where he keeps saying First Amendment and, you know, nobody can stop me and things like that. Um, is he meaning to get a shot of uh, one of their houses with his phone or a picture? Is that the angle he's talking about? Certainly the context becomes important because when they search his vehicle, they find um, a Glock, they find a semi-automatic, what appears to be a cut-down assault rifle, and they find hundreds of rounds of ammunition. So he's um, being held without bail while they get to the bottom of this. All right, John Miller, thank you so much, as always, for your insights. Turning now to our national lead and the gun violence epidemic that continues to wreak havoc throughout the United States of America. This holiday weekend was marred by a slew of mass shootings. 356 mass shootings have already taken place this year Alone, a haunting reminder of how constant this deadly violence is and how countless lives are constantly being turned upside down. Just last night, as fireworks lit up the sky on the 4th of July, so did gunshots. Just listen to the numbers. In the nation's capital, nine people were shot. In Boston, five people were shot. In Shreveport, Louisiana, three were killed, seven others wounded. Again, this is all just yesterday, what I just said. And this list of victims goes on and on, all met with thoughts and prayers. In Philadelphia, my hometown, prosecutors say the alleged shooter in a mass shooting on Monday went on a, quote, deliberate killing spree 
setting out to kill strangers. Five people were killed, including a 15-year-old boy. Kim Brady Carriker now is in prison, being held without bail and facing numerous charges, including murder. CNN's Danny Friedman starts off our coverage in Philly with how this mass shooting has left a community distraught and terrorized. A warning some viewers might find the video in this report disturbing. Today, 40-year-old Kim Brady Carriker appeared in a Philadelphia courtroom. He's accused of opening fire on a street hours before the 4th of July. The attack captured by this street corner surveillance camera. People outside, people eating water ices. Nobody's expecting to just come outside and somebody walking around shooting people. Prosecutors say Carriker randomly shot and killed five people Monday night and attempted to murder several others. On what was supposed to be a beautiful summer evening, this armed and armored individual wreaked havoc, firing with a rifle at their victims, seemingly at random. At this point, investigators are still searching for a motive. A law enforcement source telling CNN Carriker's Facebook page could provide some answers. The most recent public post, the morning of the shooting, a man in tactical gear holding a gun. Carriker also posted about gun rights, religion, freedom, and Black Lives Matter. Separate law enforcement sources told CNN the suspect told police he committed the shooting to, in some and substance, clean the neighborhood. I didn't see the guy until the, the fire started coming out of the gun. We saw the sparks coming out of the gun, and that's when I ran. Police say Carriker indiscriminately sprayed Philadelphia's King Sessing neighborhood with bullets, killing pedestrians and hitting a car with a mother and twin two-year-olds inside. One was shot in the leg. This was random. This was someone who set out to kill strangers, um, which of course has become way too common in the United States. Police chased and ultimately arrested Carriker, who was wearing body armor and a ski mask, carrying a police scanner and holding an AR-15 style rifle and a handgun. This is just a tragedy at the, at the pr most profound, deepest level. We're talking about completely innocent bystanders who did absolutely nothing to put themselves at risk. I feel him saying, why me, why me, why me? 20-year-old Lashad Merritt was among those killed. His mother says he loved his family, his girlfriend, and his job. Some maniac walking around, just shooting, shooting, shooting. For what? We, would, we probably would never know why, you know, but you took my son. You, you took my baby. Now, Jake, the public defender's office who's representing Carriker declined to comment on the arraignment or case today. He's due in court later this month. And I want to say there's actually a vigil tonight in honor of those who were lost, scheduled for 7 p.m. It's going to take place in that southwest Philadelphia neighborhood where this shooting occurred. Jake? All right, Danny Friedman in Philadelphia, thanks so much. As we mentioned, the suspect in the Philadelphia mass shooting had a large social media footprint, posting videos and pictures about God and freedom and the Second Amendment. Let's bring in CNN's Josh Campbell. Uh, Josh, what stood out to you when you looked at his social media? Well, these social media accounts can be gold mines for investigators as they try to get to a motive. And sadly, we've seen similar sets of facts in past mass shootings. It appears to be someone who was so driven by grievances, so paranoid that he ultimately resulted to violence. I mean, you look at this account. I mean, there's a post, you know, heralding Donald Trump and God and guns. There's another post where he mentions, you know, Biden is going to take people's guns away. That all, by the way, essentially mimicking what Donald Trump told the NRA recently at a convention, that the Democrats are out to take your guns or unleashing criminals on your community. Interestingly, our colleague John Miller is reporting that a law enforcement source says that after he was arrested, the suspect told police allegedly that he was there to clean up the community. So, so troubling as you see someone apparently motivated by grievances and then acting upon them.
Josh, the, the, the 4th of July holiday uh, historically has seen the most mass shootings than any other day of the year. Why? Why are they so common around the 4th of July? Well, if you look at the different motivations, if you have a mass shooter who's just intent on causing indiscriminate carnage, obviously public gatherings like those that occur on Fourth of July could be lucrative targets. But also we've seen, you know, these block parties where you have people that are engaged in some type of uh, dispute and they go to guns to try to settle them. So we've seen many, many bystanders that have been injured in the process. Looking nationally at this epidemic, I want to show you this chart just to show you where we are. And that is the number of mass shootings in this country. You see right now 356. That number is continue to go up today. And if the rest of this year is on par with the uh, previous six months, that number is going to eclipse the past years. Finally, look at that 2019 jump to 2020. That was the big spike. Since then, we're seeing that number appear. And finally, sort of pointing out, Jake, that, you know, we know what the solutions are. I talk to law enforcement officers all the time who are at the, you know, on the front lines of responding to these shootings. And, you know, we're not here that both sides, the issue without merit, but they say that both Republicans and Democrats share some of the blame. Republicans, because of their unwillingness to pass common sense gun reform, such as universal background checks, which, by the way, nearly 90 percent of the American public uh, want to see happen. And then Democrats, who they say are, you know, investigating shootings, these uh, progressive district attorneys, but they want to see more action to go after people who have unlawful possession, so-called lower level gun crimes, trying to get ahead of those when they escalate and actually result in lives being taken, Jake. All right, Josh Campbell, thank you so much. Coming up next, new fears about an assault on Ukraine's Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Both Ukraine and the Kremlin are warning about sabotage. But hear what Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky just told CNN's Aaron Burnett about the intelligence he's getting. Plus, the special delivery today in Ohio as voters demand that they get to decide the future of abortion rights in that state. And I'm going to speak with a woman trying to break a remaining glass ceiling here in Washington, D.C. Stay with us. Topping our world lead, a massive explosion in the Russian-occupied eastern Ukrainian region of Donetsk and conflicting claims over what exactly was hit. Russian state media says Ukrainian shelling killed one and injured nearly 70 others. The Russians say that the strike destroyed apartment buildings and kindergartens and medical facilities. Ukraine's armed forces say that they wiped out a Russian military installation and that the Kremlin is lying. Meanwhile, renewed concern over the safety of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in southern Ukraine. That's the largest nuclear plant in Europe. Both Russia and Ukraine are accusing each other of sabotaging the plant, though the United Nations nuclear watchdog says that risk of serious harm to the facility remains low as of now. CNN's Erin Burnett just got back from Ukraine, and she's joining us now. Erin, great to see you. Great work over there. And you had a wide-ranging, exclusive interview with President Volodymyr Zelensky, including discussion of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. What did he have to tell you? Well, Jake, you know, he's been he's really worried about this. And he believes from Ukrainian intelligence that that plant has been mined by the Russians. And, you know, we've been hearing some reports that some of the um, Russians who have been operating that plant maybe are, are pulling out. And, you know, he believes that all of this is part of if Russia were to withdraw, that they would remotely detonate these mines. And he has a lot of frustration, Jake, with the IAEA uh, because he says Grossi comes in with the team. Uh, Grossi, who obviously is the, the chair of the IAEA, uh, he has a lot of respect for him. But he says he comes in uh, with a small team and you're not going to find these mines with a small team of people. Let me just play the exchange on the Zaporizhia plant concerns for you. Zaporizhia, 
I know yeah. you've been touring yeah. the nuclear yeah. plants. You have warned that Putin could be prepared to have a terrorist attack on Zaporizhia. Do you feel that that could be imminent? So, uh, I, what I, I, I have really from intelligence, I had documents. I, I don't, I can't tell you what, what kind of documents, but it's something connecting with Russia. Mm-hmm. I said that they are technically ready to do something. It's very important that they mind some lo- local minings. Yes, you, so at local. Zaporizhia. Yeah, at the in the station. They technically are ready. And that's why we pushed MAGATE, MAGATE in English, I'm sorry. I-A-E-A, yes, I-A-E-A, yes. And we pushed them and we said, look, your team there, you're four. There are four, four people. And this plant is like city. Mm. It's really like city. It's huge, huge, it's very big. Four people will not find mines. And Jake, you know, he went on to say, even if Grossi sent a team of a thousand people, uh, you won't find the the mines because you need a big, big team to do that. But obviously what he's suggesting, and he's very clearly saying, uh, and he said that the, the Russians, he says, uh, according to the intelligence he has, uh, have the ability to remotely detonate the mines that are there. And obviously the mines, you don't need many to cause what would be a mass, mass radiation event uh, for, for all of Europe, if not even broader, something that, that he is honest, the mayor of Kiev is honest, that they don't have a plan for. I mean, really, who can? And that is the, the great fear that they have, that Putin is ready to do this. Yeah, and Aaron, so I interviewed him in April of last year, and I have to say, he looks a little more than one year older uh, in the images from your interview. I'm not begrudging or criticizing, I'm just saying, like... He's a wartime president now for more than a year. What did he tell you about that, about what it's like to be a wartime president? You know what's interesting, Jake? He, uh, it was a beautiful day where we met, and we met in Odessa. Um, obviously now, currently, we, you know, we talked a lot about Crimea, uh, but that, that's their port, right? That's the grain port. That's the port, uh, their Black Sea port now. Um, it, you know, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't do things outside of Kiev, so I think he was very happy to be there. But also this interview was outside. And Jake, you know, he it was almost at the last minute there had been Russian surveillance drones and it almost wasn't outside. Um, And he just kept appreciating the sun. And I know it sounds like a strange thing, but I think all of us can kind of imagine. I mean, this is a person who he, he talks about at one point feeling like he's living in a cage, but he doesn't want to become like a beast. Uh, but he lives, he, he, he very rarely sees the sun. And he talks about the importance of that and also what he does in his own time, Jake. And we'll hear more about that tonight. But music is something important to him for a few minutes a day. And he talks about his favorite bands and his face sort of lit up when he talked about those moments to himself. ACDC, Guns N' Roses, Eric Clapton, uh, that, you know, at his core, like all of us, he's a human being. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to watch. Aaron, thank you so much. Great work. Right, and thanks, you, Jake. You can catch Aaron's full exclusive interview, interview with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern on Outfront. This is, this is only on CNN. Great work by Aaron Burnett. Check it out. Let's bring in Republican Congressman Mike Turner of Ohio. Now, he's the chairman of the House Select Committee on Intelligence. Uh, chairman Turner, good to see you. Uh, happy 4th. Russia and Ukraine are accusing each other of sabotaging the nuclear plant in Zaporizhia. The U.N.'s nuclear watchdog says... They've inspected parts of the facility. They didn't find anything in recent days. What are we to make of all this? Do you believe the Ukrainians? 
Well, this is one thing that we know. We've seen with our own eyes Russians bombing and shelling uh, this very plant. And the International Atomic Energy Agency, under Director General Grossi, has flagged this as an, on the verge of an international crisis. Uh, and literally, he's used powers that he doesn't really have. The agency's under the United Nations, but he has has caused himself to be inserted and his inspectors to be in. And he has has you know sounded the warning alarm uh, to the world that this was a crisis. Now, I think President Zelensky, uh, with the intelligence that he has, and certainly the concern that we've seen of Russia just recently uh, sabotaging a dam that resulted even some of their own uh, soldiers uh, dying in the in the deluge. Um, it shows that that they will hit infrastructure. They've they've bombed this very plant before. I think his I think his uh, his concerns are very valid. Today, the the Kremlin insisted that reporting that Chinese leader Xi Jinping had warned Putin not to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine, that Xi warned Putin of this during their face-to-face meeting in Moscow, uh, that was false, according to the Kremlin. Uh, Xi did not do that. What's, What's your take? Well, you know, we won't know the the private conversations that have happened between them, but certainly you have seen since uh, President Xi and President uh, Putin uh, have engaged that there were a lot less uh, overt uh, threats by Putin in using uh, nuclear weapons. Um, I think that he's that Putin has been surprised uh, that the the world outcry of their invasion and, and really the atrocities that have happened in Ukraine, and I think he's also been surprised. Uh, that uh, he has gotten word, I think, both from the countries he thinks that support him and certainly uh, the West, that uh, using nuclear weapons would be an, an unbelievable red line uh, that would be uh, you know, with unbelievable world outrage and consequences. Regarding uh, Prigozhin and the Wagner Group's um, armed mutiny last week, Zelensky told Aaron Burnett that, quote, half of Russia supported Prigozhin, unquote. Um, I'm sure that's a very difficult thing to poll uh, have you seen any intelligence to support that idea that, that Prigozhin enjoyed that much popular support in Russia? Well, one thing that we've seen in the public record is, is one, certainly when he entered Russia itself, he was greeted not only by the populace, but by elements of the Russian military itself uh, as a hero. And they, they certainly welcomed him coming into Russia. And then the fact that he made that 12-hour drive to Moscow, 10 hours long he, he did before he turned around, uh, with uh, without you know, significant military repercussions showed that there were most likely uh, in the Russian military uh, people who were assisting him. And you've cer- we've certainly heard reports of people who are, are perhaps bearing the consequences of supporting that. But certainly I do think that, that Putin is sitting today knowing he does not have the full support of his own military. The U.S. has been careful not to openly call for regime change in the aftermath of the Wagner uh, mutiny. A former U.S. intelligence official told Politico, quote, Regime change that occurs through a chaotic and violent process is also the most likely to produce another authoritarian leader, which could possibly be worse than Putin, unquote. Uh, And obviously, uh, Prigozhin is no hero. He's not the second coming of Thomas Jefferson. Uh, Do you agree with the basic idea that the devil we know might be better than the one we don't and we don't want to encourage a violent uprising? Sure. But one thing this has obviously done is, is weakened Putin so that those people who are in the establishments in Russia, those who you know, certainly have financial interests throughout Russia, they're beginning to question their own stability and the consequences to them if there is not a change. So even though we would not want this you know, abrupt change and regime change in, in Russia, this certainly is beginning to set the groundwork that those who, who you know, certainly um, honor Mother Russia are looking at, at Putin and not seeing him as the person who's going to guide them for very much longer in the future. 
Intelligence Committee Chairman and Republican from Ohio, Congressman Mike Turner. Good, good to see you, sir. Thanks for joining us. Coming up, Thank you. Coming up, the, the judge's order that uh, cuts off parts of the Biden administration from contact with some of the biggest names in social media and why this ruling is considered so unusual. Stay with us. And we're back now with our tech lead, which is closely tied to politics. A Trump-appointed federal judge ordered a slew of Biden administration agencies and officials to stop talking with social media companies about online content. As CNN's Vanessa Yurkiewicz explains, this has to do with a lawsuit filed by Republican state attorneys general over social media, free speech, and COVID disinformation. A block and a charge. In a new federal injunction, the Biden administration now banned from contacting social media companies for violating the First Amendment. This injunction is unusual. It is unusual in its breadth. It is unusual in its nationwide scope. And it's unusual in its its thin reasoning. In a 155-page injunction littered with citations from the founding fathers, federal judge Terry Doughty bars nine critical government agencies, including the State Department, CDC, FBI, and Justice Department, and at least a dozen key administration officials, including the White House Press Secretary and U.S. Surgeon General, from communicating with social media companies, including TikTok, Meta, Twitter, Google, and WeChat, except related to illegal activity or national security. We welcome everyone to today's hearing on the weaponization of the federal government. The injunction stems from a 2022 lawsuit filed against the Biden administration by two GOP state attorneys general from Louisiana and Missouri. The Biden administration has led the largest speech speech censorship operation in recent American history. Since taking office, President Biden and his team have labored to suppress viewpoints, with which they disagree. The lawsuit claims the administration coerced and colluded with social media companies to suppress content like COVID-19 theories, vaccine efficacy, election integrity, and stories about Hunter Biden and the president himself violating the First Amendment. The First Amendment is not uh, concerned at its core with misinformation or untruth, and, and certainly no one has a First Amendment, robust First Amendment right to spread untruths on the Internet. A White House official said the DOJ is reviewing the injunction. And our consistent view remains that social media platforms have a critical responsibility to take account of the effects their platforms are having on the American people, but make independent choices about the information they present. Now, these companies and personalities are making money by peddling lies and allowing misinformation that can kill their own customers and their own supporters. It's wrong. It's immoral. I call on the purveyors of these lies and misinformation to stop it. Judge Doty, who has yet to rule on the case, says if the plaintiff's claims prove true, it, quote, involves the most massive attack against free speech in United States history. Now, legal analysts say that they believe that the Biden administration will appeal this injunction, possibly all the way up to the Supreme Court. One legal analyst told us they believe that the Biden administration does have a legal leg to stand on in terms of proving that they did not infringe on the First Amendment when they were communicating with social media companies. But, Jake, they will face conservative judges up and down the court judges who have broken with past precedent recently. It could be a bigger uphill battle for the administration than they may be expecting. Jake. 
All right, Vanessa Yurkiewicz, thank you so much. Voters in Ohio today are sending a strong message, all in response to the U.S. Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. We're going to go live to Ohio to see what's going on there next. In our politics lead, hundreds of thousands of signatures were delivered today to the Ohio Secretary of State by those hoping to enshrine legal access to abortion in the Ohio Constitution through a November ballot measure. This is the latest chapter in what has become the United States of America's state-by-state abortion debate one year after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. But as seen as Jeff Zeleny reports for us from Columbus, Ohio, Republican legislators in that state, they're now trying to change the rules. They want to require more than a simple majority of voters to amend the Constitution. Box by box, a summer showdown over abortion in Ohio intensified today as supporters of abortion rights delivered hundreds of thousands of signatures demanding the issue be placed on the November ballot. These boxes obviously contain signatures of real Ohioans. It's, it's overwhelming. I mean, it's just an absolutely stunning moment. I can't believe we're here. For months, Dr. Aziza Wabi has been part of an effort to gather support to have voters decide whether to enshrine abortion rights in the Ohio Constitution after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade and returned the debate back to the states. I was never very political before all of this started last year, so um, this has made me pay more attention, and I think it will do the same for others. A year after the landmark Dobbs decision, fallout has rippled from courtrooms to the campaign trail, energizing Democrats. Now I stand here, proud to run for re-election. And alarming Republicans. I don't judge anyone for being pro-choice. In Ohio, GOP lawmakers are going to great lengths to stop the abortion rights movement. It started last summer in Kansas, where an abortion measure drew historic turnout for an August election, with a resounding 59% voting to protect abortion rights. Michigan voters followed suit last fall, with 57% voting to change the state's constitution. Those outcomes were so alarming to opponents of abortion rights in Ohio, they are taking the extraordinary step of trying to change the rules in place for more than a century on ballot issues. It's called Issue 1, which seeks to raise the threshold to change Ohio's constitution from a simple majority of 50 percent to a supermajority of 60 percent. Today we're filing over 700,000 signatures. Vote in November. And vote in August. The signatures must still be verified by Ohio's Republican Secretary of State, Frank LaRose. At a GOP county dinner, he made no apologies for using the August special election to stop the abortion rights amendment. This is 100% about keeping a radical pro-abortion amendment out of our Constitution. The left wants to jam it in there this coming November. Amy Natosi of Protect Women Ohio, a coalition that opposes abortion rights, dismissed suggestions the August election was in any way undemocratic. Ohioans should be reminded of the fact that this is allowing them to determine how their constitution is amended. You know, we've seen the other side saying one person, one vote, this takes away the people's voice. Not at all. This gives the people of Ohio an even bigger voice to decide how their constitution is amended. So Ohio is the next frontier in this state-by-state battle over abortion, but Jake, it is indeed a complicated uh, one. Supporters of the November ballot question accused the Republican officials scheduling that August election as trying to sneak in an election where they believe there will be low turnout. One thing is for sure, for the next month here in Ohio, abortion will be front and center in television ads on people knocking doors. 
This is one to watch, Jake, first in August and then again, of course, in November. Jake. Fascinating. Jeff Zeleny in Columbus, Ohio. Thanks so much. I'm going to talk to a woman trying to be one of the next trailblazers in the U.S. Congress, why she wants you to hear her story. That's next. We're back with more in our politics lead. The retirement of Democratic Senator Tom Carper, Democrat of Delaware, is setting up two trailblazing possibilities. First, Congresswoman Lisa Blunt Rochester, the incumbent House member, she's likely to snag that Senate seat. She's running to replace Carper. That would make her Delaware's first ever female senator and Delaware's first ever senator of color. Eyeing her House seat is another potential trailblazer, Sarah McBride, a Delaware state senator who aims to be the first openly transgender member of the U.S. House. She has a strong ally and a fellow Delawarean with whom you might be familiar. I'm proud that back home in Delaware, the first transgender state legislator in American history, Sarah McBride. And State Senator Sarah McBride joins us now. So Delaware has a a crazy primary system. It's the last one in the country, September 2024. As of now, you're the only announced candidate for the U.S. House seat. Do you think you're going to get President Biden's endorsement? Well, I think the president is going to be focused on running and winning re-election in 2024. But I am so proud to call this president a friend and an ally and so grateful for his leadership, not just for the country writ large, but fighting for LGBTQ equality here in Delaware and nationally. So I think he'll be focused on his race, but uh, I'll, I'll be grateful to, to see him on the campaign trail. How much are you going to be focusing on LGBTQ rights uh, as a candidate for the U.S. House? And, and, and what other issues do you think you'll be talking about? Well, I'm not running to be the LGBTQ member of Congress from Delaware or the first transgender member of Congress. I'm running to be Delaware's member of Congress focused on making progress on all of the issues that matter to Delawareans of every background. That's why I ran for the state Senate here in Delaware. It's why I've championed health care and passing paid family and medical leave in the Delaware State Senate. And it's why I'm running for Congress to advance paid family and medical leave at the national level, to guarantee affordable early childhood education for every Delaware family, to pass gun safety measures like the assault weapons ban we passed here in Delaware, and to make sure that we're enshrining reproductive rights and the right to an abortion in federal law like we've done here in Delaware. Diversity in government is certainly important. And in order for our democracy to work, it has to include all of us. And so I'm proud of who I am. This campaign, though, isn't just about making history. It's about making a difference on all of the issues that matter. Your campaign is, uh, we cannot uh, escape the fact, launching at a time when states across the country, uh, Republican legislatures, are restricting uh, the rights of individuals who identify as transgender What is your message? Let's say that there's a skeptic out there watching right now, because the transgender idea is a relatively new one in American politics today, even if transgender people have not been, is not a new idea. What's your message to a a skeptic out there who says, I just don't even understand any of what this is? Sure. Well, first off, I, I think we have to recognize that people are still learning and they are still just tuning into this conversation about who transgender people are. And I think there are few ways to, to better demonstrate the, the full diversity of our country, the full diversity of trans people 
than seeing a transgender member of Congress who's focused on all of the issues that matter and actually delivering progress on those issues. But I, I think beyond that, I know what it's like to feel unheard and unseen. I know what it's like to feel like your government doesn't have your back. And whether you understand what it's like to be me, what I can con convey to anyone up and down this state is that you don't have to understand me for me to fight for you. Because ultimately, I know what it feels like to feel left behind and unseen. And I don't want any Delawarean to feel that way. That's one of the reasons why I'm so motivated to do this, because I think at, at this critical moment in our country, we have to answer the question whether our democracy is big enough for all of us. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, here in Delaware in 2024, we have the opportunity up and down the ticket to demonstrate that not only is the heart of this country big enough to love all of us, but that our democracy works best when all of us have a seat at the table. People in the president's orbit say you have helped shape some of his views on LGBTQ issues. Politico says, quote, Biden has leaned on McBride, calling her to discuss the current moment in American politics. Over time, she has helped turn one of the most devout Catholic presidents in U.S. history into an unlikely champion of LGBTQ causes. Uh, Joe Biden's 80 years old, uh, has a history in his early career as being kind of conservative on social issues including abortion, including segregation. How did you change his mind? How did you open his eyes to your experience? Well, I, I would never take credit for opening anyone's heart or mind on transgender rights. Joe Biden has a big heart, and that big heart has led him to be one of the most vocal champions of LGBTQ equality at the national level. That's why he came out for marriage equality so early. It's why he called trans rights the civil rights issue of our time back in 2012. But I also think that no story can be written or told about Joe Biden's legacy on these issues without talking about his son, Beau, who I had the privilege of working for. I think in many ways, this president sees in LGBTQ rights Beau's legacy. Beau championed marriage here in Delaware. He championed trans rights here in Delaware. And I think this president feels closer to Beau and closer to Beau's legacy when he's helping to carry it forward. And I think that's a huge part of, of where this president's passion lies beyond just the fact that he's a deeply empathetic and kind person. State Senator Sarah McBride, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Just hours ago, a CNN crew arrived, arrived in Belarus. What we're learning about the suspected whereabouts of the Wagner boss, Yevgeny Prigozhin, after he tried to pull off that rebellion in Russia. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, a new court order today. In Donald Trump's classified documents case, what a judge wants that might reveal exactly what the Justice Department went to find when agents showed up to search Mar-a-Lago last year. Plus, the use of force by two Los Angeles deputies now under investigation see the alarming video of the woman thrown to the ground and what she did just moments before that has her community coming to her defense. And leading this hour, something we hardly ever hear, Russian fighters speaking on camera about what life is like for them on the front lines of Ukraine and how the Kremlin pulled them into this war in the first place. CNN's Ben Wiedemann got exclusive access to Russian prisoners of war, speaking to CNN from a makeshift Ukrainian jail, willing to share the at times appalling firsthand stories of fighting Putin's brutal war. No longer on the front lines, Anton recounts how he ended up a prisoner of war. Back in Russia, he was behind bars for the third time for drugs. 
When they put me in prison, I heard they were recruiting. Serve six months and they pardon you, he tells me. So he signed up with Storm Z, a unit made up of convicts attached to the Russian defense ministry. After only two weeks of basic training, he was shipped off to the front lines near Bakhmut. After days of intense shelling, no food and only rainwater to drink, he heard Ukrainian troops outside his foxhole. He assumed they would execute him. I thought that was the end, he recalls. I switched my rifle to single-shot mode and thought, I'll shoot myself. But I couldn't. This video, shot by soldiers of Ukraine's 3rd Assault Brigade, shows the tense moments when Anton and his comrade, Slava, surrendered. The Ukrainian troops told them, unlike Russians, we don't kill prisoners. We spoke to Anton, Slava and another soldier in a makeshift jail in eastern Ukraine, concealing their faces and not using their real names. The 3rd Assault Brigade granted us access to the POWs, and two of their soldiers were in the room for the interviews. The POWs will soon be transferred to Ukrainian intelligence. They didn't appear to be under duress and agreed to share their stories. Slava, also serving time for drugs, said conditions in the trenches were grim. Food was scarce. We didn't have medical kits, he says. His commanders took all the painkillers to get high, he recalled, and as a result issued nonsensical orders. Morale was terrible. Sergei was wounded by a grenade before surrendering to Ukrainian troops. He was a contract soldier, not a convict. He completed his six-month contract in Kherson and went home. But when he hesitated to sign another contract, a military prosecutor gave him a choice, prison or back to the front. He ended up outside Bakhmut, under constant Ukrainian fire, discipline collapsed. The officers fled. All illusions were shattered. It was very different from what I saw on TV, a parallel reality, says Sergei. I felt fear, pain and disappointment in my commanders. A law passed last year in Russia imposed sentences of three to ten years for soldiers who surrender voluntarily. If he returns home in a prisoner exchange, Anton may end up again back in a Russian prison. Men like Slava and Anton are barely soldiers. They were hardly trained, poorly led, poorly supplied. They were, to put it crudely, the meat in Russia's meat grinder in the Battle of Bakhmut. Now, the Ukrainians say that they are making slow but steady gains there, but they are running into very stiff resistance. The the Russians have reportedly poured 50,000 troops into the defense of that town, many of whom will probably end up in the meat grinder. Jake? Remarkable reporting from CNN's Ben Wiedemann in eastern Ukraine. Thank you so much. CNN is also on the ground in Belarus, a close ally of Russia, and now apparently the home of Wagner mercenary warlord Yevgeny Prigozhin after his short-lived, largely unchallenged mutiny in Russia last week. It was ill-fated, of course. Belarus's leader, Alexander Lukashenko, was not shy about his role in ending Wagner and Prigozhin's rebellion. 
Lukashenko claimed he was able to successfully negotiate with Prigozhin when the Wagner boss refused to pick up Putin's phone calls. Let's get right to CNN's Matthew Chance, who is in Minsk. Uh, Matthew, what's the latest on the Putin-Lukashenko relationship? Are they still tight? Uh, well, I mean, it's a fascinating relationship, but it's, you know, it's pretty one-sided in the sense that, you know, when Putin asks for something to be done, Lukashenko, this is what it looks like from the outside, Lukashenko just goes ahead and does it. Putin wanted to use Belarus as a launching pad, one of the launching pads for his uh, invasion of Ukraine in 2021. Lukashenko agreed. Putin wanted nuclear weapons to be stationed in this country so that he could threaten the West even further. Lukashenko agreed. And when there was that military uprising, that attempted coup, as it's been described in Russia, by Wagner mercenaries and their leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, what was it, last week? Um, Well, you know, Lukashenko stepped in and invited Wagner and Prigozhin to come and live over here. The Kremlin announced all of those things, of course, but Lukashenko you know, says this was all him. This was all him showing what an independent, you know, free kind of agent he is operating in this region. But the fact is, he's heavily indebted to Russia. And so he owes them a lot of money, more money than any other country in the world. He's isolated internationally because of his own terrible human rights record. And those things are pushing Belarus more and more into the arms of the Kremlin. Jake. CNN's Matthew Chance in Belarus, thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss retired U.S. Army Brigadier General Peter Zwak. He served as a senior U.S. defense attache to Russia. Also with us in studio, Beth Sander, former deputy director of national intelligence. General Zwak, let me start with you. Back to what we just heard in that incredible Ben Wiedemann report at the top of the hour. One of the POWs accused the Russian commanders of being high all the time on painkillers and giving at times nonsensical orders. Understandably, this led to very low morale, according to this PSPOW. Do you, do you think that's true? Does that comport with other intelligence that we've heard? And what can Ukraine do to capitalize on any low morale? Good evening, Jake, viewers. War is hell at any level, but especially in the trenches, especially when you're coerced to fight. And that we're getting, we've been getting all since the beginning of the invasion last year, that most of the Russian forces on the ground, um, and that would be uh, young soldiers and junior to mid-grade officers, are, are an absolutely living hell down there. And the coercion and the, and, the, and the storm units and everything else. So yes, I do believe um, whether it's pills or drinking, lots of drinking, that uh, those reports that things go on at that low level where discipline is on the edge, which we've been reading for quite some time, it is completely feasible. Um, uh, The troops, um, I don't think, have any faith in their leadership. The only thing they're fighting for at that level, um, um, I believe, is for their own lives and for their foxhole buddies, but they're not fighting for the regime. And um, and Evgeny Prigozhin brought that out. So no, this is this is a real corrosion, erosion within the Russian ranks. That I don't know what the breaking point is, um, but uh, it's it's there. And now they're going to put in so-called another hundred eighty thousand. That big number. Well, a lot of them uh, certainly uh, do not want to come if this is true. Uh, and I think we just have to sort of uh, stand by. So that, Beth Center, is uh, is already the situation before 
uh, the Wagner-Pergosian uh, attempted rebellion. Uh, and you've said that the, the rings of implication from that attempted mutiny uh, will spread very wide now that we're more than a week out from it. Um, how do you see Putin's grip on power and his reliance on the leader of Belarus, uh, Alexander Lukashenko? Well, I actually don't think that his grip on power in the very near term is shaken as much as a lot of commentators say. Um, I think more about the rings being more unstable. The closer you get into the elites, um, the more firm it is for the time being. And the reason being is because those elites depend on Putin and Putin's reign, right? And so he put his cards in with Shoigu and the military, and now the military, those people owe him even more. So while there were a few bad apples, certainly, um, what did Putin do? He raised the pay of the military. He held a ceremony giving them false thanks, right, because they didn't help out during the mutiny. But he held this big ceremony saying how great they were. He's trying to keep those people together. So I I actually think that in the near term, I I think that Putin isn't that much weaker. Hmm. Um, And then uh, Russian state media reports Ukrainian shelling has killed one person and injured 40, including children, in uh, Donetsk, uh, Russian-occupied territory, um, damaging kindergartens, medical facilities, apartments. That's what Russia says. Ukraine says they destroyed a Russian military base. When it comes to to this sort of, like, competing claims, do you you just automatically discount what the Kremlin says because they've lied about so many things, including whether or not they were going to invade Ukraine? Well, a lot of times Russia says um, exactly what you would expect them to say. You know, they're always going to be blaming the other side and they're always going to be trying these false flags. For example, on the Zaporizhia nuclear plant, them saying that the Ukrainians are about to attack could be a cover for what they do themselves. So so they're always trying to change that perception um, of their own people in particular. Um, They don't want to be seen as, you know, butchers. Yeah. All right, Beth Sander and Brigadier General Peter Zwack, thanks to both of you for your expertise. Appreciate it. Coming up uh, ahead to the 2024 race and what seems to be Donald Trump's laid-back approach, at least in the last few days. And we just learned the suspected gunman in that horrific mass shooting in Philadelphia had two ghost guns on him. Those are highly untraceable weapons. Philly's mayor is coming on the show. We'll ask him how much these ghost guns are creating tragedies in his city. In our law and justice lead, we could soon learn new details about the special counsel's investigation into Donald Trump's handling of classified documents. A Florida judge wants the Justice Department to release a new version of that redacted court document that was used to support last summer's search of Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago property. CNN's Paula Reed joins us now. Paula, what is behind this request and what might we be able to learn? So, Jake, what we're going to be looking for here are new details about what the then Justice Department, right, this predates the special counsel, knew in early August 2022 before they conducted the search at Mar-a-Lago. We'll also be looking for anything mentioned here that didn't end up in the indictment, right, things they may have looked into that didn't result ultimately in criminal charges. We've previously seen redacted versions of these documents. We expect that these two will be redacted to protect ongoing grand jury investigations, sources, and methods. But it will be interesting to see if we get any new details. And this can happen as soon as today. And Trump's aide, Walt Nada, who is charged alongside him in this case, he's finally, finally, finally <laughs> set to face arraignment tomorrow. 
Uh, as we all remember, he showed up on that day, even though Trump was there alongside him with his team of lawyers. And while Nada works for Trump, Nada didn't have a lawyer. Exactly. He has local counsel here in D.C., but he doesn't have anyone representing him who is uh, licensed in the Southern District of Florida. But it's not that hard, Jake, to find a lawyer uh, who can represent you, particularly in these kind of preliminary matters. This is, will be his third attempt at being arraigned. Some people have asked, is this a delay tactic? Most likely, yes. All right, Paula Reed, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Turning to our 2024 lead, Republican hopefuls descended on Iowa and New Hampshire over the July 4th holiday, braving Rain and kissing babies and shaking plenty of hands, trying to be the party's pick to take on President Biden. Former Vice President Mike Pence is going all in on Iowa, holding three events there alone today. CNN's Kyung La is in Sioux City, Iowa, where Vice President Pence is due to speak. Kyung, how is Pence going about courting voters? Is he focusing on any specific groups? Well, to focus on the words of Mr. Pence himself, what he's telling the Iowa groups that he's meeting with is that he is doing the, quote, full pizza ranch tour. So what does that mean? Well, Pizza Ranch is a chain restaurant. There's 71 of these restaurants spread out across Iowa, especially in some of those rural counties. It is a gathering place where a lot of the town gathers to meet at times of dinner and lunch. And so he is going to those crowds. It is those small little places that he plans on introducing himself, not as Trump's vice president, but as Mike Pence presidential candidate. This first in the nation caucus state really likes to shake the hands of the people they will end up caucusing for, often meeting not just one, but multiple candidates. And some of the voters we are meeting along the way as they are meeting Mike Pence say so far for them, it's working. Take a listen. It's wonderful. It's the only one you have a chance to really know how they feel, answer questions at your level of the community and country, our state. Is that how you win in Iowa? Yes, yes. But the emphasis is that it is in his corner. She is in his corner for now. As you very well know, Jake, uh, people here in Iowa do tend to sway all the way up until caucus day. Jake. All right. Kyung La in Iowa, thank you so much. Let's discuss with my august panel. Uh, as all, well, let me start with you. Vice President Pence clearly targeting Iowa. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Uh, he is a deeply religious man. There are a lot of important uh, that's in the important block of voters for the Republicans is a deeply religious evangelical community. This is what he said, Penn said, when asked if he needs to win Iowa. Take a listen. Do we need to win Iowa? Look, I think, I think we need to do well in Iowa. We're going to work our hearts out. I think different times call for different leaders. The Republican primary voters have this uncanny knack of choosing the right standard bearer for the right time. So just to go back for a little historical trip uh, down memory lane, uh, Ted Cruz won in uh, 2016. Before that, uh, Rick Santorum. It is a place where uh, the religious right candidate, the more conservative uh, Christian candidate, wins. Uh, that's right. And you would think that it takes on increased importance here, particularly when you have somebody that's trying to run a sort of different lane than that of Trumpism, than that of uh, trying to run a sort of uh, and show that there's an alternative option rather than Donald Trump or even DeSantis, who seems to be almost trying to run to the right of Trump and see if he can provide an alternative option for uh, uh, those in the Trump base. If you're Mike Pence now and you're not sort of seeking to galvanize off those 
similar sort of culture wars, while being, that being said, uh, certainly still conservative and still appealing to many of those sort of far-right policies. But if you're him, you would think that some of these more traditional swing states in Iowa would absolutely be essential if you hope to break through. So just for our folks at home, I just this is journalist, 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 Democratic pundit, Republican <laughs> pundit. Sarah, as the Republican pundit at the table, how do you, how do you uh, assess the Republican race right now? Obviously, Donald Trump is leading, and I think that a lot of folks were hoping that DeSantis would be the strongest contender to him, and it doesn't seem that that's reflective in polling right now. Obviously, we've seen a dip from DeSantis, but there's still a lot of time between now and when the first vote is going to be held. Donald Trump isn't really out there on the campaign trail, where you're seeing all these other candidates who are spending a lot of time in the early states like South Carolina, New Hampshire, Iowa. And so they're hoping to raise their name ID and potentially be able to you know, make a challenge to Trump. But right now, that's going to prove really difficult. Uh, but let's talk about that, Paul. Just I know you're not a fan of Mr. Trump, but <laughs> he spent the Fourth of July weekend yeah. seemingly um, sharing memes online, okay. uh, attacking Biden, praising himself, uh, not campaigning, not out there uh, meeting folks, shaking hands, et cetera. Now, you could argue he doesn't need to. He's the leader. He's the front runner. And he also is a former president. Do you think he's doing the right thing? No, strategically. I, you're right. I don't support him. But a, a lead is not an egg. It doesn't hatch if you sit on it. Get off your tail, sir. Go run. Again, I don't want him to win. But if I were, as a strategist, right, that's what I mean. you never want to sit on a lead. Now, he violated every rule of political, uh, allegedly many federal laws as well. But he's violated all these laws and, and succeeded within the party. Attacking but, POWs. It's oh, gosh. But people, ever, people right. want him, particularly in Iowa, New Hampshire. They're famous for this, but it's true. You know, the old st- story that this uh, back in the when Barack Obama was an unknown senator, this guy said, well, I'm not sure if I can be for Barack. He's only been over the House two or three times. You know, they really want to see you in person there. And God bless Mike Pence for he's out there in the hot sun campaigning hard. I should note, though, that the Trump campaign does say that he did have that rally in South Carolina Mm -hmm. over the weekend. They're arguing that it was the Fourth of July weekend and that he was still out there. But, yes, he wasn't doing the retail politics that we saw all of the other candidates doing on the trail yesterday. Um, And I do think part of it is also the Trump campaign and Donald Trump himself loves the allure of the big rallies of the, you know, rock concert style rallies. We have thousands of people coming more so than the more intimate retail politicking, what we saw Pence do in Iowa yesterday and today, handshaking through a parade. It's just not as much Trump style. So I just wanted to to point that out. What did you make of the booing of Lindsey Graham at that South Carolina primary? He's obviously been an unreliable uh, stalwart in terms of Trump. He's broken apart from him, but he always runs back. He always is supportive. I I was going to say, I mean, I don't know if he's consistently always, you know, broken away from him. Often we talk about, and there's been many times where Lindsey Graham is one of the people we cite when we kind of, as you said, go back to saying that Trump still has a grip on Republicans in Congress, right? So the fact that he's then booed, I think any time that happens, it brings up the question of, uh, is this breaking through to voters? And by this, I mean, if you're a member of Congress who was asked about a uh, uh, incendiary or hateful post uh, by the Trump campaign or a controversial policy, and as we saw for the past five years or four years that you may decline to comment right. or you express your support. For I didn't it. see the tweet. Is it? I didn't see the tweet. <laughs> is it breaking through to voters in terms of are you actually still maintaining support? In this case, 
you see that those people at that rally actually maybe weren't aware of that or, or was not uh, uh, top of mind for them at that point. I was there Saturday at his rally. I asked some of the people in the crowd why, you know, I mean, the booing was incessant. It yeah. was before Lindsey Graham got up on stage. It was throughout his entire remarks. And then any time Donald Trump mentioned Graham in his own speech. And this is his home state. This is his right. home state of <laughs> right. South Carolina. Yeah. His home um, county. Exactly. Yeah. And I think there's a couple factors for the reasoning. Some is that they just do not think that Lindsey Graham has been the fiercest supporter of Donald Trump and has broken with him on certain things. Um, and the people at that rally were Donald Trump's fiercest allies. But the other thing was actually that I found surprising was about his position on Ukraine. A lot of people and also in my Twitter mentions on Saturday when I was talking about the crowd size in South Carolina, people were railing against Lindsey Graham for and calling him a warmonger, saying that he's supporting the war in Ukraine, continuing to support aid there. And that was a big gripe that a lot of those supporters had. So Donald Trump isn't the only one questioning uh, the U.S. support for Ukraine. Uh, Ron DeSantis is as well. We were just talking about uh, that. The, the DeSantis campaign has been pretty open about its strategy going to Donald Trump's right in many sense. You saw that uh, homophobic uh, anti-LGBTQ uh, ad from the DeSantis War Room. Uh, Philip Bump of the Washington Post writes, you can't be more conservative than Trump when he defines conservatism. And that's, that's an interesting take because Ron DeSantis is defining conservatism through the traditional prism, but I don't know that that's, that's uh, germane. Yeah, it's definitely hard to out-Trump Trump. He's trying to run to the right of him and take these more far-right stances that then will push Donald Trump even further, I think, to the right. But it's kind of interesting, too, because I think DeSantis um, thinks that this is the lane for it. But I think what we're seeing in the polling right now is that there is an appetite for a anti-Trump candidate too, someone who's willing to take Trump head on. We've kind of seen Chris Christie start to go up in the polls in uh, New Hampshire, for example, where his message is being um, received well. And I think that that is showing that people want an alternative to Trump and Biden. People don't want to have the same rematch that we had in 2020. And so um, DeSantis right now, his polling has gone down. So maybe this wasn't the right angle to take, but who knows? Maybe that it will pay off. There's still a lot of time between now and November. I think the, the most impregnable fortress in American politics is the base Trump voter. Oh. They're wonderfully loyal if you're a Trumper, right? Maddeningly loyal if you're not. It, it, the, a, a, a direct assault on a fixed position is the least successful military strategy. A long way of saying DeSantis is a fool for doing this. You're not going to out-Trump Trump on Trump issues with Trump voters. But half the party does seem open to somebody else. And I do think of everybody I've seen. Christie has. So I think you're right, Sarah. Christie has done the best job of actually taking Trump on. Thanks to one and all. Appreciate it ahead. The crisis facing every single lawmaker in the country. The stunning number of mass shootings in the United States. 356 mass shootings so far this year. At least five added to the list just today. We're going to talk to the mayor of Philadelphia coming up about the horrific violence erupted, erupting in that city. Just some ugly news in our national lead. It is officially the worst time of the year for mass shootings in the United States of America. July 4th and 5th have accounted for the most mass shootings of any other days of the year in nearly a decade in the United States. And sadly, this year is shaping up to be no different. As CNN's Ryan Young reports, police across the country this week have their hands full solving these horrific crimes. The long 4th of July holiday ended in tragedy for many communities across the country. 
A series of mass shootings over the four-day period left at least 16 dead and 94 injured, according to the Gun Violence Archive. In Philadelphia Monday night, a 40-year-old man armed with an assault rifle and a handgun fired randomly along several blocks in the southwest part of the city, killing five people, one of whom was just 15 years old and injuring at least four others. The suspect, who's being held without bail, made his first appearance in court today. The city's district attorney says authorities are still trying to determine if the assault rifle used in the shooting was purchased legally. And Larry Krasner also lashed out over the state's gun regulations, calling them crap in comparison to other states in the Northeast. It's time for people who are running for office to swear off NRA money, to swear off gun lobby money, to swear off this absurd interpretation of the Second Amendment that has been put out there by militias. Gunfire erupted late on the night of the 4th at a community block party in Shreveport. Police say the shooting killed four people and wounded seven others. No suspects have been arrested. You have caused us grief. You have caused us pain. And I want whoever you are to pay. And I want you to pay relentlessly. Also on Monday in Fort Worth, Texas, several unknown men started firing into a crowd killing three people and injuring eight others during a neighborhood 4th of July parade. Victoria Sally lost her 18-year-old nephew in the shooting. That was, his, that was his first day off in, like, forever, and he just wanted to enjoy the little whatever was going on. A mass shooting at an annual block party in Baltimore killed an 18-year-old woman and a 20-year-old early Sunday. 28 other people were injured. I think, frankly, people are, are tired of the, the, the finger pointing in the politics when nothing happens and nothing gets done except we just can you continue going from tragedy to tragedy. In the nation's capital earlier this morning, shots fired from a speeding SUV. It injured nine people who were celebrating the 4th. The victims include a 10-year-old and a 17-year-old whose injuries weren't life-threatening. We are uh, also troubled by violent incidents that we've seen around the country where violence uh, and guns marred a holiday weekend. Jake, just tough details in all these cases. But just think about this one. In the Shreveport case where that shooting happened, one of the bodies, that fourth victim, wasn't found until this morning in tall grass. That shows you just how hard detectives are working around the scene even to try to identify everyone who was injured or killed in these incidents. And if you think about it, from Philly to Baltimore to Shreveport, these are all cities where people say they want something done about gun violence. Brian Young, thank you so much. And let's go back to Philadelphia and bring in Mayor Jim Kenney. Uh, he said last year that he was looking forward to not being mayor anymore because he is so tired of having to deal with the gun violence and the tragedies day after day. Uh, first of all, Mr. Mayor, how is the community of King's Essing doing? Uh, what more do they need? What more can people do um, or the city do to help them heal? Well, they're, they're traumatized and um, obviously rightfully so. Um, there's no reason in the world that that situation should have happened Monday night. Uh, and the common denominator in all of these things are guns and the availability of guns and the high capacity of guns. Um, you know, I owned a gun years ago and it was a six shot revolver. I had a permit to carry. Uh, six shot revolver is good for self-protection. Uh, you know, 50 shot clips of armor piercing bullets um, are only for killing people and, and killing cops and killing citizens. Uh, and there's no reason in the world why these things should be available to anyone. When the uh, when I was standing in the courtyard of Independence Hall 
yesterday during our celebration on thinking about the people in that building back in 1775-76. None of them had any idea what the Second Amendment was going to wind up blossoming into uh, in this uh, in this environment. Uh, you know, they were talking about a, a, a single shot, muzzle loaded long gun to fight the British. They weren't talking about AR-15s to mow down people in streets of Philadelphia. Police um, say that the two guns found on this alleged shooter were both ghost guns, uh, which are yeah. uh, untraceable. You can get them together from a kit and, and create them yourself. The city of Philadelphia is now suing two large suppliers yeah. of ghost guns. How big of a problem are ghost guns in Philadelphia? Well, we've 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 um, confiscated 300 percent more uh, ghost guns in the last oh, three years. Uh, we, we used to have virtually uh, single digits uh, prior to a few years ago. And then we hit um, we hit 60 uh, and now we're we're up to five, 570 so far. And the problem with those guns, I mean, Pennsylvania has the weak one of the weakest gun control or lack of a gun control laws in the nation. And these companies could even want to go around the bare minimum regulations and be able to sell these this stuff by mail to anyone without a background check uh, and without without a serial number on the gun. Uh, and you can take these guns through magnetometers without being detected. So this is like a level of insanity that no one no one should ever deal with. I want to show you a map from the city controller of all the shootings in Philly uh, just this year up to July 4th, not including July 4th for those uh, at home, the yellow dots are people wounded. The red dots are people killed. Um, I, I know you're calling for stricter uh, gun control legislation. You're critical of politicians who are beholden, in your view, to the to the gun lobby, to the NRA. But it, it's not just that, right? What what more needs no. to be done here? Well, we've just budgeted $233 million in our budget uh, to deal with uh, outreach and social services and job training uh, and, and those type of non-police uh, services. Uh, also, our police, and I, I have to say this publicly, and I've said it before, our police are top-notch. They're some of the bravest people that I know. Uh, that Monday night issue, they were facing live fire. They were scooping people up from the street and, and zooming, uh, zooming them off to the hospital to try to save their lives. Uh, and they were pursuing a guy shooting an AR-15. Uh, and that man wound up li- staying alive, believe it or not, uh, after, what he, after all that he did. And I give our police total credit in that that evening and saving more lives that would have been lost otherwise. Uh, But we are investing in in many, many different areas. But the bottom line is we've taken 6,200 guns off the street last year. These are crime guns. This is not just privately owned guns people keep in their house for 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 protection. These are guns that were used in the commission of a crime. Uh, our, our homicide rate is down about almost 20 percent uh, from last year. And that's certainly not good enough work. We've got to continue to drive those numbers down. But things seemingly are going in the right direction until um, a thing like Monday night, which is shocking, uh, where a person who should have never had that gun and apparently has more guns. He had more guns in his in his house. Um, yeah. should never have had those guns and should have never been able uh, to kill those people randomly. So is, is the theory still that the killer had no specific motive other than randomly murdering anyone who came within his path? Uh, I can't get into I can't get into the specifics of his case because, you know, the things are moving forward on the on the legal end. Uh, but but there was no, apparently no relationships between the shooter and any people who were killed or injured. Just a a horrible story in a wonderful city. Uh, Philadelphia Mayor uh, Jim Kenney, thank you so much, and best of luck, sir. Take care, Jim. Coming up in the Situation Room, Alex Marquardt is going to speak with the top prosecutor in this case, Philadelphia District Attorney Larry Krasner. That's going to come up at the top of the hour. 
Next year on The Lead, the disturbing video leading to an investigation of two deputies and their use of force on a couple outside a California grocery store. In our world lead today, hundreds of Palestinians marching through the occupied West Bank city of Jenin, carrying the bodies of the 12 who were killed in Israel's two-day incursion into a refugee camp, an incursion meant to dismantle what the Israeli government calls a, quote, safe haven command center for terrorists. Israel said its forces have left, ending its largest military operation in that area in more than 20 years. But as seen in Salma Abdelaziz reports from Jenin, the bitter tensions remain. Chants of anger and defiance ring out in the city of Jenin. The morning after Israel's military withdrew, thousands filled the streets to bury the dead. The Israeli military says that all 12 killed in its incursion were combatants and that its operation aimed to dismantle terror networks here. But this father says he is proud. His 19-year-old is what he calls a martyr and was a fighter for one of the Palestinian armed factions killed in the incursion. My son told me he didn't want to get married or have a family, he says. He said all he wanted to do was to dedicate his life to Palestine, to fighting the occupation. This funeral is quickly turning into a demonstration of resistance. Many of the armed Palestinian factions are here to show that they are unbowed, unbroken by Israel's raid. For many Palestinians, Janine is a name and place synonymous with suffering and resistance. But this battle has come at a heavy cost. In the aftermath, the camp's residents were left without running water, electricity, or basic services. And families returned to destroyed homes. Hanet Shalabi says she and her three daughters were caught in the crossfire. Our home, all these material things, they can be replaced, she says. But how can I rebuild the psyche of my little girls? How will they ever feel safe again? She takes me upstairs to show me what's left of her daughter's room. My youngest, she's only seven years old, she tells me. She says she wishes she was never born. She says I should never have birthed her into this horror. Israel's military says it's achieved its operational goals, wiping out weapons depots and command centers in Jenin. But it has also deepened the hatred and motivated the resistance in a city notorious for always fighting back. Salma Abdelaziz, CNN, Jenin. Salma Abdelaziz reporting from the West Bank city of Jenin. What the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department is telling CNN about the actions of two deputies and their use of force on a couple outside a grocery store. That's next. In our law and justice lead, claims of excessive force by sheriff's deputies in Los Angeles County. Officials removed two officers from field duty amid outrage over videos showing them roughly throwing a man and a woman onto the ground. This happened late last month outside a grocery store in Lancaster, California. CNN's Natasha Chen is in Los Angeles for us. Um, Natasha, police released body cam footage from the incident. Uh, Tell us what happened. 
Yeah, Jake, the sheriff's department is now investigating this incident. And as we walk through what happened here, it's important to remember the man and woman you're going to see in this video were cited and released. But a deputy talking to us was not able to say what they were cited for. Now, this started in Lancaster two Saturdays ago when deputies responded to a call about a robbery in progress at a grocery store. And when they arrived, they approached a man and a woman who matched the description given by store security during a 911 call. And here, what you're seeing is one deputy arriving on scene. Uh, the man approaches him, uh, is sitting there and actually tells him that he's the one who told them, and by them we think he is referring to the store, to call the police and that he waited for police there. Then police handcuff him as the man is asking what he did uh, and, and saying that he has nothing on him. Uh, the deputy then says to his radio, deputies involved in a fight. The man says, I'm not going to fight you. And as they uh, put him on the ground there, uh, he is constantly asking what he did wrong. And he's also saying, as the woman is starting to be uh, approached by the other deputy, he's saying uh, that that's his wife, that she has cancer um, and that what they're doing is wrong. So let's show you now what the woman said to police as they grabbed her arm as she was filming this. Tell your tell her, please, you over here. No, you can't touch Stop. me. You can't touch Stop. me. Get down on the ground. You Get on the ground. Stop. I don't get Stop. Stop and you get punched in the you, face. You punch me and you're gonna you're gonna get sued. Too. You already got sued. I got it Take on camera. Stop. I Turn got it around. on camera. Get your neck off my off my And right then you're seeing this she's being sprayed we don't know what substance she's being sprayed with exactly she's yelling that she wants a commander to be called uh, the two deputies here that you're seeing have been reassigned off of field duty and uh, the sheriff's department uh, released the these body camera videos they said they don't give statements on ongoing investigations but did say that sheriff luna has made it clear he expects department personnel to treat all members of the public with dignity and respect and that personnel who do not uphold our training standards will be held accountable. And in the course of describing what happened, the Sheriff's Department also acknowledged there is cell phone video from another bystander. They called that video disturbing, and we are still attempting to get a copy of that video ourselves, Jake. All right, Natasha Chen in Los Angeles, thanks so much. Coming up, the record set yesterday, July 4th. Chances are we all helped contribute to it. Stay with us. In our Earth Matters series for the second time this week, this planet hit its highest temperature since governments in the U.S. and Europe started keeping records of such matters. Scientists say yesterday reached a whopping 62.9 degrees Fahrenheit, which might seem modest, but keep in mind that's the average temperature for the entire world. And that shattered the record set just a day earlier. Monday's temp, 62.6 degrees Fahrenheit. Blame humans for Climate change, scientists say. Experts also say hotter days are trapping more heat and longer, so overnight hours are not cooling off as quickly as they used to. There's often also the urban heat island effect. Cities with more asphalt and taller buildings often retain more heat, while places with more parks and rivers can release that heat. Maybe something to keep in mind next time you hear a debate over climate change and what we should do about it. 
Moving on, how about this for the steamy summer? I have a brand new thriller. It comes out next Tuesday. All the demons are here. I try to take you on a wild ride through a bizarre era for the nation, the 1970s. The book has Evil Knievel and Elvis, post-Watergate mistrust, cults, disco, the summer of Sam, tabloids, UFOs, and much more. I would be honor, honored if you would check it out. You can pre-order it now. Our coverage continues now with Alex Marquardt. He's in for Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.